It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Martha McCallum. I'm Brett Baer, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, April 13th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. A Republican primary in Georgia is testing the endorsement of former President Trump. Without Trump's endorsement, Kemp cannot get the voters that he needs out. We speak with former senator and Georgia gubernatorial candidate David Perdue. I'm Chris Foster. Former Attorney General William Barr spent two, as he puts it, tumultuous years working for President Trump, describing it in his new book and the title as one damn thing after another. I did the best I could on each issue that came to me, and then I did what I thought was right and justified under the law and facts and not play games. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Voters in Georgia could have a rematch this year in the race for governor. Incumbent Republican Brian Kemp is running for a second term. He narrowly defeated Democrat Stacey Abrams four years ago. Abrams is the far and away frontrunner for Democrats this year. Kemp is also a frontrunner, but facing a challenge from former Senator David Perdue, who has the backing of former President Trump. He has to win the Trump voter. And he's done nothing but fight Trump for the last two years. Kemp was on the Fox News rundown yesterday. Today, a chat with Purdue about why he's challenging a fellow Republican he worked closely with when both held statewide office. I do not believe that Brian Kemp can beat Stacey Abrams for the simple reason that he has to win Republicans. He has to win the women in the suburbs and he has to win the Trump voter. And he's done nothing but fight Trump for the last two years. And certainly when we see the lack of involvement in investigating any of the facts that are now beginning to come out, I can't see how these people who are upset about the election are going to vote for it. Then in addition to that, he's divided the party over several other issues, the Buckhead City vote for one. These are the things that have split the party. And so what I've done is decide to just give people a choice in this primary as to who they think can stand up and beat Stacey Abrams. Well, let me ask. Well, I want to talk about that aspect of it, but let's start with the election stuff. Governor Kemp supported, got passed that election integrity bill. I know you were a supporter of that, I believe. Um, he has moved proposals that a lot of Democrats say are dangerous, but that Republicans have called for when it comes to election integrity. What else would you do as governor? Well, first of all, go back to 2020. I would have not let that consent decree get signed. I mean, I would have fought that with everything I had. They fundamentally turned the elections over to Stacey Abrams. They changed law, really, by edict. Things like they allowed money to be donated directly to campaign election uh, boards in certain counties. Zuckerberg put $55 million in here doing things like uh, mobile voting buses and so forth. Now, some of that has changed in the law that I did support. I didn't go. I said publicly it didn't go far enough. If you're not going to check signatures, which did not happen in 2020, what makes people think that in those Democrat counties they're going to check Social Security numbers or driver's license? So my thing has been about the enforcement of the law to date. No real outside investigation has been had, although the secretary of state, the governor all say, oh, no, it's all been looked at. It's all been debunked. Well, that's not true. If you look at the court case that voters brought against Fulton County alone, just that one case, the judge ruled that the evidence was compelling and he ruled to unseal the ballot. Now, before they did that, he ruled that the uh, voters do not have legal standing and he dismissed the case. Now, that case is in appeal. 
and I believe it will win on appeal. But I can't wait that long. I want to get the answers now. But and as so governor, I, that's in the court system already. What we, we, There's nothing is. a governor yeah. can do to change the judge's mind. No, I agree. But the fact that he didn't even investigate his telling everybody it had a clean election is being denounced by a civil court. That's the point I'm trying to make. So his denial that anything happened in 2020 and that there are no facts that support the illegal activity during the election is just not founded in truth. So that's the point I'm trying to make there. Right now, he could absolutely initiate a GBI, a Georgia Bureau of Investigation investigation into by ballot trafficking and ballot harvesting. That's the first thing he should do. He saw this evidence in May, the first time I saw it in May as well, and he has done nothing. In fact, that he has impeded that. You see testimony now being given by the people who actually did the investigation from True the Vote that said that the governor's office actually leaked names of people that were involved. So that was very detrimental to the investigation. That's the first thing that should happen. And that's those are the points that, that a lot of people are very upset about in the state of Georgia. What would you propose be passed moving forward from Very a simple, legislative man. point of view? Yeah. It's a great question. Very simply. Number one, it's not the laws. It's the fact that we don't enforce the law. I'll give you the straight answer and I'll give you the reasons why you need this. First of all, I would propose and have publicly a law enforcement agency dedicated solely to enforcing voting laws. The second thing is any statewide elected office that has to be certified would have to have an outside audit. This is a truly independent audit, not done by the Secretary of State. And the third thing is I, I've said publicly we'd get rid of these voting machines that have most people have lost confidence in those. So those are things I would do. Here's why law enforcement is is absolutely in, imperative. If you go back and look at, at what happened in November of 2020 in DeKalb County and in Fulton County, two among nine that had this problem. These are mainly Democrat counties. The cab only had nine absentee ballots, Jared, that were rejected because of a bad signature match. In Fulton County, only 10 out of 147,000. So it's pretty obvious they were not checking signatures. There's even people who have made those statements that the signatures are not being checked. So I went back and looked. In 2016, we had the same low rate of uh, rejection of bad ballots because of bad signature matches. And that's when Brian Kemp was Secretary of State. So we did not enforce the law even when he was Secretary of State. And all I'm saying is, if you have a law that's supposed to check the identity of an absentee ballot voter, then that absentee ballot voter should have to comply with the law. That's all I'm saying. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like what you were proposing would take oversight of the state's elections away from the constitutional officer that is supposed to have oversight of the state's elections. No, what the secretary of state has already been removed as chairman of the state election board. They did that in this bill that they talk about. So what I'm saying is that I want the law enforced. They have changed the law. The law right now, just to use one example, says that an an absentee voter uh, has to supply their driver's license or or social security number or some ID number. And that has to be matched to an official record. Well, if they're not matching it, then we're not enforcing the law. So in effect, voter ID for absentee ballots was not in effect in several counties in Georgia in 2020. But the new law addresses that. It does, but only if enforced. The last law addressed that. It had signature verification. If they had done that and looked at national averages, then we probably wouldn't be sitting here talking. I probably wouldn't be running for uh, the the governorship. I mean, so that's sort of the point I was, I guess, trying to get to with with sort of all these questions about the election aspect is that's really like the only issue that you don't see pretty much eye to eye with with Governor Kemp on, right? Oh, I wouldn't I mean, say you guys that at on, all. on on education issues on a lot of these other issues seem no. to be pretty lockstep. No, 
No, not at all. I really didn't realize in December how different we view things. Let me give you an example. Economic development. I want to get rid of the state income tax. We've got to become more competitive. And so uh, I propose getting rid of the state income tax. The governor says you can't do that. With regard to economic development, I believe in creating jobs. I know how to do that. I've done it my entire business career. But to do it the way they just did with Rivian, where they cram it down the throat of, of local community, they got no say in the matter and no involvement in how it was going to be done and so forth. And to do it with a company that is owned primarily by George Soros and to give hundreds of millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, to a company owned by George Soros with no disclosure. They have not even disclosed the total amount of that yet. The third part of that is that there were six or seven people who own land down there. They're going to make $125 million uh, with grossly inflated prices, like $60,000 an acre on average, uh, which is dramatically higher than, you know, almost six times higher than the average uh, land cost in that area of Georgia. Uh, The slush fund, we took him to court on this, Jared, and won. The court said that his slush fund super PAC was unconstitutional, and he put a stay on it. Uh, Now, instead of being reprimanded, the governor actually doubled down. It just shows that they think that it's okay to have an unlevel playing field when it comes to getting reelected. How would you make up the revenue if you got rid of the state income tax? Well, I'm working with Art Laffer, who is Mm -hmm. a a world renowned uh, economist or is a world renowned economist. He was Reagan's economist. He was Trump's economist. And we are working. First of all, you have to rationalize the tax credits and deductions on the sales tax side. There's revenue to be gained there. Second of all, you do the same thing on the state income tax side. And then thirdly, you look at the current state of play. We have a $4 billion surplus right now. I'm proposing to go ahead and reduce the rate one percentage point from 575 to 475. This is something that you're going to see other states begin to do from a competitive point of view. And Georgia certainly can be a leader in that. Let me talk a little bit about where you started, where you said you entered this race because you do not believe that Governor Kemp uh, can win statewide. He has a record of beating the Democratic frontrunner in Stacey Abrams. In your most recent election, you lost to a Democrat. What's your message to Republican voters who want to know why that situation's different now? Well, first of all, Brian Kemp had Donald Trump's endorsement back in 18. He certainly does not have that right now. So he can't get the Trump voter out. The second is, let's look at the facts. In November of 2020, had Governor Kemp not caved into Stacey Abrams, I'd be in the United States Senate today. I'm clear on that. Even with the illegal activity that we think happened in November of 2020, we produced 90,000 votes more than the Democrat, 49.8 percent or whatever. We missed the 50 percent rule by, you know, just a few thousand votes. But in that election, we produced 480,000 votes more than Brian Kemp did in 2018, only because we were able to pull all facets of the party together. That's what Kemp cannot do this year. He could have. If he had done the right thing, if he had investigated anything relative to the um, election. So that's the clear logic. Without Trump's endorsement, Kemp cannot get the voters that he needs out. Why do you think that's not resonating yet in the polls? Polls don't pick stuff like that up. You saw that in 2014, Jared. When I was running Mm -hmm. then, they had me down eight to ten points in the general election against Michelle Nunn. Uh, We won by eight points. The same thing held true in 2020 in that election. I'm just telling you, I'm running around the state right now. I don't believe these polls are picking up the energy and intensity of the people who really want to see change. They believe illegal activity happened. They want somebody to be held accountable and they want it fixed. And that's what I'm proposing. Let me ask this as somebody who's who's run, you know, to your point, a few times in the state of Georgia. Have you seen some of these these shifts? I mean, obviously, Georgia's now, you know, kind of considered a purplish state. 
Well, let's look at the facts, Jared. In November 2020, when 5 million people voted, the Democrats could only get 47.5%, period. That's not even close to 50. And by the way, that includes the illegal activity that now is coming out that's pretty obvious that happened. They still couldn't get more than 47.5%. So what I'm seeing out here is the fact that I think a lot of marginal Republicans, people aren't very involved in, in the political structure, are now involved because they feel like that their vote was not counted properly. And that means their voice wasn't heard. And people get very upset in a representative democracy when that happens. And I think you're going to see that uh, in the turnout. You know, only about one out of every three Republicans typically vote in a primary. That may change this time. Let me finish with this. If Governor uh, Kemp is able to to win this primary, are you prepared to support him over the Democratic frontrunner or over the Democratic nominee, likely, I guess, Stacey Abrams? 100%. Look, my goal here is to make sure that in 2024, we have a Republican conservative in the White House. The only way to do that is to win this governor's job. This governor's race is going to be a national race against Stacey Abrams. She wants to be president of the United States. She's using this race as a stepping stone to that end. And certainly I will make sure that we do everything we can in the state of Georgia, get all Republicans out to stop Stacey Abrams from being governor of Georgia. I always appreciate our our conversations. Appreciate the time, Senator. Uh, We'll uh, continue to have these conversations. Thanks so much. I hope so. Thank you, Jared. I appreciate it. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. William Barr was attorney general twice, from 1991 to 93 in the George H.W. Bush administration, then brought in by President Trump as his AG in early 2019, two years into his administration. Bill Barr will be nominated for the United States Attorney General position. I think he will serve with great distinction. So William Barr has been at the center or just off to the side of some of the biggest events and stories of the last 30 plus years. The Gulf War, Supreme Court confirmation fights, the Russia election interference investigation, an impeachment, the COVID pandemic and the 2020 election. He says he was reluctant to take the job the second time. I didn't want to go into the government for a host of reasons, mainly, you know, my own lifestyle was terrific at that point. William Barr's book out now is called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of an Attorney General. But I I saw that the country was careening sort of toward a potential constitutional crisis. The Russiagate thing was being used to uh, hurt the president and potentially even drive him from office and smother the administration. And a lot of people thought that the department needed someone like me who knew the department and could could run it and get confirmed by the Senate. And I eventually became persuaded that if the president asked me, I would do it because you're doing it for the country. You're doing it uh, for the, uh, to keep these important institutions functioning properly. And so I said, okay, well, if he asked me, I will do it. And he talked to me and asked me to do it. So I accepted. So you had basically talked yourself into it before you met with him. If, if, if the offer came, yeah, you mean, said my, you were going to do it. Yeah, my view was I w- they had asked me to go and talk to the people had asked me to go and talk to the president about it. And I said, I'm not going to talk to him unless I would actually accept the job. Otherwise, it's a waste of his time. And so I had to sort of cross that bridge mentally before I even went to talk to him that if he decided 
he needed me that I should be prepared to do it. So I talked it through with my family. Uh, I had three daughters who were lawyers and members of my family and my son-in-laws were in the department and so it would affect them too. And so we talked it through and everyone thought at the end of the day that I was in the best position to stabilize things at the department if I was asked. And so that's that's how we got there. Uh, the Mueller investigation is one of those things that you are obviously aligned with President Trump on. Um, right. And there were, there were there was this media narrative, excuse forgive me for using the word, but you've used the word that you were a toady for the president. Yeah. Um, but right. but there may there were just things that you happened to agree with him on, not that you were carrying out his bidding. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was uh, committed in my own mind that the only way to get through this it's uh, during these times was to just make sure that I did the best I could on each issue that came to me and that I did what I thought was right and justified under the law and facts and not play games. And I told the president that in the criminal justice area, that's what I would do. We can't have politics determining what we do in the criminal justice sphere. And he agreed, and that's how I handled it. And it, as you say, just it just so happens that the way I handled the Russia gate, which was which was a completely uh, a false narrative that was being used as a weapon against the president, these were decisions based on the merits. I knew they would hurt me politically because the media would use them to advance their narrative. But at the end of the day, I have to be fair to the individual. That's what our justice system is about. But there were things that the president uh, wanted me to do. He didn't tell me directly, but it was obvious from his tweets and his behavior. He wanted to see scalps uh, brought before the election because that could be helpful to him, you know, on the Durham investigation and so forth. but we were not in a position to do it. The The investigation took a long time, longer than we liked, largely because of COVID that had frozen a lot of things. But I wasn't going to do something just to uh, use the criminal justice process to help him politically. That would have been wrong and an abuse. And he was very frustrated by that. Yeah. The Donald Trump, the, the Donald Trumpness about him that got him elected in the first place, his, his personality, who he is, you say probably cost him the election the second time around, just by the way he handled COVID, for example. How did the, how did his qualities hurt his handling of the pandemic? Just as an example. So you know, I, I I say that his his some of his qualities actually helped him in 2016 uh, because people were very frustrated and because it helped them blow through the the mainstream media smothering uh, of his, of his viewpoints and so forth. So he was he was somewhat effective because of those traits. But in 2020, they didn't work. Um, they basically alienated a lot of the suburban voters, and he was told for about a year that he was going to lose the election unless, you know, he tempered some of his obnoxious behavior. And I think that his handling of COVID was a mixed bag, but generally, uh, you know, he was hurt by it. But I think what was decisive wasn't so much COVID, but the kind of attributes he showed in the first debate, you know, sort of uh, cranky, belligerent, sometimes petty. And polling had showed that he was going to lose uh, many of the key suburbs because of that. And that's ultimately what happened. He he did not try to uh, correct for that. Uh, And I think that's why he lost the election. You know, he he 60,000 people went to the polls in Pennsylvania and voted Republican except for him. 
he ran weaker than the than the statewide Republican ticket and and the members of Congress that were running for reelection. If, if you're going to run behind the Republican Party in Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you're, you're going to lose the election. Yeah. And that's what happened. Um, you resigned a little shy of a month early. You didn't buy that the election was stolen. Some people still do, or at least are pretending to believe it because Trump supporters do. Um, is election fraud a big problem? And do you worry that fraud, or maybe more importantly, the perception of fraud going forward, are just par for the course in every presidential election now? No, I don't think they have to be, and I am worried about fraud, uh, and I'm worried about you know things that that undermine the integrity and the public acceptance of election results. Anything that dilutes the safeguards in an election uh, to make sure that the votes are kosher, anything that dilutes that is going to cause people to doubt the outcome, and that's what we're seeing now. And that's true whether or not you can ultimately prove fraud. It's very hard to prove fraud. It's very hard to cure fraud after the fact. That's why you have to have the protections in place at the time of the election. That's why I was against universal mail-in ballots and things like that. And I spoke out strongly uh, about that before the election. So I think the thing to do is what the governors in Georgia and, and Texas have been doing, which is tightening up the rules in the states. The states are responsible for those rules, and they should be tightened up. And the parties have to be, and the Republican Party has to be very vigilant uh, because the Democratic Party seem, I think, they're playing with fire because they seem to be prepared to have elections based on the honor system. Well, no one's going to trust the outcome of those elections, and then we're in, you know, some very dark times if people don't think the elections have any integrity. And that's what we're seeing right now, distrust. You predicted that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin would be emboldened by President Biden's election, that Biden would be seen as weak. And um, this obviously isn't in the book because you didn't write the book in the last couple of months. But um, now we're seeing what we're seeing uh, in Ukraine. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton and some other people have said, look, Putin was just waiting to see if Trump was reelected that Trump would have let Putin just waltz into uh, Ukraine on a post. What do you think would be happening now if Trump was president? Um, I think probably if Trump had been elected, I think there probably would have been a period where we sat down with the Russians and engaged with them and try to work out some modus vivendi with the Russians. Uh, where that would, you know, whether that was something that was feasible, whether we could reach a meeting of the minds that assured the Russians, uh, you know, that that they weren't their milit their security wasn't being imperiled by NATO or or the expansion of NATO. I don't know, but I think there would have been a, uh, an effort. I'm confident there would have been an effort toward that because I think the way uh, I think we saw the world was that. China is the long-term, very serious danger to us, and we need to stabilize things in Europe. Uh, we can't afford to have, you know, separate crises—one with Russia and one with China. We need to stabilize things, and so I think there would have been an effort to do that. I don't think we had that chance under Biden because, as I said in the book, as soon as he saw Biden take control, and as soon as he saw the disgrace that that occurred in Afghanistan, he was going to take what he wanted, and so there was no need to talk to us. It's funny how the news and life works out sometimes. Like the President Trump's first impeachment was based on this phone call with this then very obscure, at least here, uh, guy who was a comedian, Vladimir Zelensky, the new president of Ukraine, asking him to announce this Biden investigation. You say, first of all, you say that call was more, I don't know, self-destructive than it was 
and maybe unnecessary than it was criminal, right? Right, right. I don't think there's nothing criminal in that call. uh, And uh, I just thought it was a lot of I I thought the whole thing with Giuliani trying to drum up uh, getting Ukrainians to investigate Biden was a stupid was a stupid idea. Uh, And it ended up hurting the president. But, uh, you know, I don't think he should have been impeached over it. You write in the book, you you don't think it's it's you don't think the party should be going back to the Trump well next time. Any plans, though? I'm guessing no. To, no plans to get back in the saddle if under President DeSantis or Haley or Pence. You're 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 done with government. Uh, well, I wouldn't say I'm done with government. Uh, I have no real desire to go back into government. But as I say, if the president needs you to do something, uh, you know, you're disposed to, to listen to that because you're doing it for the country. But I doubt I would go back to the department again. It's a it's a very I think it's one of the hardest jobs in government. And having survived it twice, uh, I'm not sure I would go back again. I think it's a tremendous opportunity for the Republicans going forward. I think it could be another uh, Reagan era where the Republicans dominate through several elections. And I think we need the right leader to lead us in that and help restore America to make America great again. That's what it'll take. It's, it's not something we can do in one term. It's something that requires three terms or four terms uh, to to accomplish. Ilvar's book is called One Damn Thing After Another, Memoirs of Attorney General. Which one damn thing after another was uh, it was his title about, by the way? Which which damn thing? Yeah. There were so many of them. <laughs> there were so many of them. But, you know, it, it, I, I'll never forget the day where, well, you know, once Mueller went up to testify, to me, that marked the end of the Russiagate nonsense. Uh, once he went up to testify during the summer of 2019. And we were quite happy to put that baby to bed. The very next day is when the president had his phone call with Zelensky, and off we were on impeachment. So <laughs> that was definitely one day after another. William Barr, thanks a lot. Good to talk to you. Thank you. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Download and listen to Everyone Talks to Liz. Fox Business's Liz Clayman talks with entrepreneurs and executives about inspiring and motivational stories. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? The numbers are in. As if there was much doubt about it, a new study has revealed that some of our nation's bluest big states underperformed on COVID response compared to ruby red Florida and others. The number crunching, which combines deaths, economic harm and educational impact, was done by the Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and it's a doozy. At the very bottom of the list, to the surprise of absolutely nobody who was paying attention, are New York and New Jersey. The Empire State's handsy, disgraced, and former Governor Andrew Cuomo was heralded as the leader the world needed on COVID just two years ago. But according to this study, his state and others with widespread lockdowns had high age-adjusted death rates, they had high unemployment and significant GDP losses, and they kept their schools shut down much longer than almost all other states. 
Meanwhile, as the nation continues to emerge from COVID, even in Democrat-run cities, Dr. Anthony Fauci, of all people, is telling Americans it's time to assess their own personal risk of the virus. Dr. Fauci, a man so risk-averse he wouldn't place a bet on the sun rising in the East. While it's great that Fauci and other leaders are finally coming around to the idea of living with risk so as not to destroy the entire economy and children's education, what the study makes clear is that this should have been our government's attitude all along. It will not be easy for former proponents of strict lockdown to accept this data, but then again, they were the ones insisting we all follow the science. The plain obvious fact of the matter is that states like Florida, which opened up as early as late April 2020, never experienced the kind of death and destruction that detractors of Governor Ron DeSantis warned of. It wasn't human sacrifice, as some in our COVID hysterical press put it. It was a calculated risk and it paid off. Today in China, which gave us the virus and the inspiration for lockdowns, we see millions again forced to isolate themselves in their homes. Remember when people complained, why can't we be more like China back in 2020? Does anybody want to be like China today? Would any sane person even think of closing down our cities as we did ever again? Sadly, we shouldn't hold our breath for studies like this one or even eventual congressional COVID commission to dent Democrats' appetite for lingering restrictions like New York City's ridiculous workplace COVID mandate. Leaders like Mayor Eric Adams can't get it through their heads that basically anyone who wants one can have a vaccine today and be protected from severe illness. Put another way, it's over. These studies are important because they all show the same thing, which is the lockdowns were a mistake to begin with, and that maintaining them long after their original purpose of keeping hospitals from overcrowding was achieved harmed the lives of millions of Americans. Nobody is expecting a round of apologies from the Democrats who got all this so horribly wrong. Their response will be very vague and nuanced, focused on what we couldn't have known at the time. But many people did know at the time, including world-renowned scientists who were basically censored by our leaders and by big tech platforms. Just as important as assuring the obvious that lockdowns can't be repeated is for us to examine closely how and why so many terrible decisions were made in our bluest states. Did the personal desire for power influence those governors? Was it just inchoate fear that led them to shut it all down? Whatever it was, the debate is now over. New York was wrong, Florida was right, and everyone needs to accept it. I'm David Marcus, columnist and author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crushed a Nation. Listening to the Fox News Rundown. Rundown. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. And for up to the minute news, go to foxnews.com. Download Lauren Green's Lighthouse Faith. We sort of think that God has nothing to say about our pain and suffering. God has nothing to say about our sex life. And the truth is, is that God is very much has spoken to all of these things. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcast.com. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.